Leaf by Niggle by J.R.R. Tolkien. There was once a little man called Niggle who had a long journey to make. He did not want to go. Indeed, the whole idea was distasteful to him, but he could not get out of it. He knew he would have to start sometime, but he did not need to hurry with his preparations. Nagel was a painter, not a very successful one, partly because he had many other things to do. Most of these things he thought were a nuisance, but he did them fairly well, when he could not get out of them, which in his opinion was far too often. The laws in his country were rather strict. There were other hindrances too. For one thing, he was sometimes just idle and did nothing at all. For another, he was kind-hearted in a way. You know, the sort of kind heart. It made him uncomfortable more often than it made him do anything. And even when he did anything, it did not prevent him from grumbling, losing his temper and swearing, mostly to himself. All the same, it did land him in a good many odd jobs for his neighbor, Mr. Parrish, a man with a lame leg. Occasionally, he even helped other people from further off, if they came and asked him to. Also, now and again, he remembered his journey and began to pack a few things in an ineffectual way. At such times, he did not paint very much. He had a number of pictures on hand. Most of them were too large and ambitious for his skill. He was the sort of painter who can paint leaves better than trees. He used to spend a long time on a single leaf, trying to catch its shape and its sheen and the glistening of dewdrops on its edges. Yet he wanted to paint a whole tree with all of its leaves in the same style and all of them different. There was one picture in particular which bothered him. It had begun with a leaf caught in the wind and it became a tree and the tree grew, sending out innumerable branches and thrusting out the most fantastic roots. Strange birds came and settled on the twigs and had to be attended to. Then all around the tree and behind it, through the gaps in the leaves and boughs, a country began to open out, and there were glimpses of a forest marching over the land and of mountains tipped with snow. Nigel lost interest in his other pictures, or else he took them and tacked them onto the edges of his great picture. Soon the canvas became so large that he had to get a ladder, and he ran up and down it, putting a touch here, rubbing out a patch there. When people called to him, he seemed polite enough, though he fiddled a little with the pencils on his desk. He listened to what they said, but underneath, he was thinking all the time about his big canvas and the tall shed that he had built for it out in his garden on a plot where he once had grown potatoes. He could not get rid of his kind heart. I wish I was more strong-minded, he sometimes said to himself, meaning that he wished other people's troubles did not make him feel uncomfortable. But for a long time, he was not seriously perturbed. At any rate, I shall get this one picture done, my real picture, before I have to go on that wretched journey, he used to say. Yet he was beginning to see that he could not put off his start indefinitely. The picture would have to just stop growing and get finished. One day, 
Nagle stood a little way off from his picture and considered it with unusual attention and detachment. He could not make up his mind what he thought about it, and wished he had some friend who would tell him what to think. Actually, it seemed to him wholly unsatisfactory, and yet very lovely, the only real, really beautiful picture in the world. What he would have liked at that moment would have been to see himself walk in and slap him on the back and say with obvious sincerity, Absolutely magnificent. I see exactly what you're getting at. Do get on with it, and don't bother about anything else. We will arrange for a public pension so that you need not. However, there was no public pension, and the one thing he could see, it would need some concentration, some work, hard, uninterrupted work, to finish the picture, even at its present size. He rolled up his sleeves and began to concentrate. He tried for several days not to bother about other things. But there came a tremendous crop of interruptions. Things went wrong in his house. He had to go and serve on a jury in the down. A distant friend fell ill. Mr. Parrish was laid up with lumbago, and visitors kept on coming. It was springtime, and they wanted a free tea in the country. Nagel lived in a pleasant little house, miles away from the town. He cursed them in his heart, but he could not deny that he had invited them himself away back in the winter when he had not thought it an interruption to visit the shops and have tea with acquaintances in the town. He tried to harden his heart, but it was not a success. There were many things that he had not the face to say no to, whether he thought them duties or not, and there were some things he was compelled to do, whatever he thought. Some of his visitors hinted that his garden was rather neglected and that he might get a visit from an inspector. Very few of them knew about his picture, of course, but if they had known, it would not have made much difference. I doubt if they would have thought that it mattered much. I dare say it was not really a very good picture, though it may have had some good passages. The tree, at any rate, was curious, quite unique in its way. So was Niggle though he was also a very ordinary and rather silly little man. At length, Niggle's time became really precious. His acquaintances in the distant town began to remember that the little man had got to make a troublesome journey, and some began to calculate how long at the latest he could put off starting. They wondered who would take his house, and if the garden would be better kept. The autumn came very wet and windy, the little painter was in his shed. He was up on the ladder, trying to catch the gleam of the westering sun on the peak of a snow mountain, which he had glimpsed just to the left of the leafy tip of one of the tree's branches. He knew that he would have to be leaving soon, perhaps early next year. He could only just get the picture finished, and only so-so at that. There were some corners where he would not have time now to do more than hint at what he wanted. There was a knock at the door. Come in, he said sharply, and climbed down the ladder. He stood on the floor, twiddling his brush. It was his neighbor, Parrish, his only real neighbor. All other folk lived a long way off. Still, he did not like the man very much, partly because he was so often in trouble and in need of help, and also because he did not care about painting but was very critical about gardening. When Parrish looked at Nigel's garden, which was often, he saw mostly weeds, 
And when he looked at Nagel's pictures, which were seldom, he saw only green and gray patches and black lines, which seemed to him nonsensical. He did not mind mentioning the weeds, a neighborly duty, but he refrained from giving any opinion of the pictures. He thought this was very kind, and he did not realize that, even if it was kind, it was not kind enough. Help with the weeds, and perhaps praise for the pictures, would have been better. Well, Parrish, what is it? said Niggle. I ought to interrupt you, I know, said Parrish, without a glance at the picture. You are very busy, I'm sure. Niggle had meant to say something like that himself, but he missed his chance. All that he said was, yes. But I have no one else to turn to, said Parrish. Quite so, said Niggle with a sigh, one of those sighs that are a private comment, but which are not made quite inaudible. Uh, what can I do for you? Uh, my wife has been ill for some days, and I am getting worried, and the wind has blown half the tiles off my roof, and water is pouring into the bedroom. I think I ought to get the doctor, and the builders, too, only they take so long to come. I was wondering if you had any wood and canvas you could spare just to patch me up and see me through for a day or two. Now he did look at the picture. Dear, dear, said Niggle, you are unlucky. I hope it is no more than a cold that your wife has got. I'll come round presently and help you move the patient downstairs. Thank you very much, said Parrish rather coolly. But it is not a cold. It is a fever. I should not have bothered you for a cold. And my, and my wife is already in bed downstairs. I can't get up and down with trays, not with my leg. But I see you are busy. Sorry to have troubled you. I had rather hoped you might have been able to spare the time to go for the doctor. Seeing how I'm placed in the builder, too. If you really have no canvas you can spare. Of course said Niggle, though other words were in his heart, which at the moment was merely soft without feeling at all kind. I could go. I'll go, if you are really worried. I am worried, very worried. I wish I was not lame, said Parrish. So Niggle went. You see, it was awkward. Parrish was his neighbor, and everyone else a long way off. Niggle had a bicycle, and Parrish had not and could not ride one. Parrish had a lame leg, a genuine lame leg, which gave him a good deal of pain that had to be remembered, as well as his sour expression and whining voice. Of course, Niggle had a picture and barely time to finish it, but it seemed that this was a thing that Parrish had to reckon with and not Niggle. Parrish, however, did not reckon with pictures, and Niggle could not alter that. Curse it, he said to himself, as he got out his bicycle. It was wet and windy, and daylight was waning. No more work for me today, thought Niggle. And all the time that he was riding, he was either swearing to himself or imagining the strokes of his brush on the mountain and on the spray of leaves beside it that he had first imagined in the spring. His fingers twitched on the handlebars. Now he was out of the shed. He saw exactly the way in which to treat that shining spray which framed the distant vision of the mountain. But he had a sinking feeling in his heart, a sort of fear that 
he would never now get a chance to try it out. Nagel found the doctor, and he left a note at the builder's. The office was shut, and the builder had gone home to his fireside. Nagel got soaked to the skin and caught a chill himself. The doctor did not set out as promptly as Nagel had done. He arrived next day, which was quite convenient for him, as by that time there were two patients to deal with in neighboring houses. Nagel was in bed with a high temperature and marvelous patterns of leaves and involved branches forming in his head and on the ceiling. It did not comfort him to learn that Mrs. Parrish had only had a cold and was getting up. He turned his face to the wall and buried himself in leaves. He remained in bed some time. The wind went on blowing. It took away a good many more of Parrish's tiles and some of Niggles as well. His own roof began to leak. The builder did not come. Nagel did not care, not for a day or two. Then he crawled out of bed to look for some food. Nagel had no life. Parrish did not come round. The rain had gotten into his leg and made it ache, and his wife was busy mopping up water and wondering if that Mr. Nigel had forgotten to call at the builder's. Had she seen any chance of borrowing anything useful, she would have sent Parrish round, leg or no leg, but she did not. So Nagel was left to himself. At the end of a week or so, Nagel tottered out to his shed again. He tried to climb the ladder, but it made his head giddy. He sat and looked at the picture, but there were no patterns of leaves or visions of mountains in his mind that day. He could have painted a, a far-off view of a sandy desert, but he had not the energy. Next day, he felt a good deal better. He climbed the ladder and began to paint. He had just begun to get into it again, when there came a knock on the door. Damn, said Niggle, but he might as well have said, come in, politely, for the door opened all the same. This time a very tall man came in, a total stranger. This is a private studio, said Niggle. I am busy, go away. I am an inspector of houses, said the man, holding up his appointment card so that Niggle on his ladder could see it. Oh, said Niggle, your neighbor's house is not satisfactory at all, said the inspector. I know. I took a note to the builders a long time ago, but they have never come. Then I have been ill. I see, but you are not ill now. But I am not a builder. Parrish ought to make a complaint to the town council and get help from the emergency service. They are busy with worse damage than any up here said the inspector. There has been a flood in the valley and many families are homeless. You should have helped your neighbor to make temporary repairs and prevent the damage from getting more costly to mend than necessary. That is the law. There's plenty of material here. Canvas, wood, waterproof paint. Where? asked Nagel indignantly. There, said the inspector, pointing to the picture. My picture! I dare say it is, but houses come first. That is the law. But I can't. Nagel said no more, for at that moment, another man came in. Very much like the inspector he was, almost as double, tall, all dressed in black. Come along, I'm the driver. Nagel stumbled down from the ladder. His fever seemed to have come on again, and his head was swimming. He felt cold all over. Driver? Dr driver of what? You and your carriage. 
The carriage was ordered long ago. It has come at last. It's waiting. You start today on your journey, you know. There now. You'll have to go. But it's a bad way to start on your journey, leaving your jobs undone. Still, we can at least make some use of this canvas now. Oh, dear, said poor Niggle, beginning to weep. It's not even finished. Not finished? Well, it's finished with, as far as you're concerned, at any rate. Come along. Niggle went, quite quietly. The driver gave him no time to pack, saying that he ought to have done that before, and they would miss the train. So all Niggle could do was to grab a little bag in the hall. He found that it contained only a paint box and a small book of his own sketches, neither food nor clothes. They caught the train all right. Niggle was feeling very tired and sleepy. He was hardly aware of what was going on when they bundled him into his compartment. He did not care much. He had forgotten where he was supposed to be going or what he was going for. The train ran almost at once into a dark tunnel. Nagel woke up in a very large, dim railway station. A porter went along the platform shouting, but he was not shouting the name of the place. He was shouting, Nagel. Nagel got out in a hurry and found that he had left his little bag behind. He turned back, but the train was gone away. Ah, there you are said the porter. This way. What? No luggage? Well, you'll have to go to the workhouse. Nagel felt very ill and fainted on the platform. They put him in an ambulance and took him to the workhouse infirmary. He did not like the treatment at all. The medicine they gave him was bitter. The officials and attendants were unfriendly, silent, and strict. And he never saw anyone else except a very severe doctor who visited him occasionally. It was more like being in a prison than a hospital. He had to work hard at stated hours, at digging, carpentry, and painting bare boards all one plain color. He was never allowed outside, and the windows all looked inwards. They kept him in the dark for hours at a stretch to do some thinking, they said. He lost count of time. He did not even begin to feel better. Not... Not if that could be judged by whether he felt any pleasure in doing anything. He did not. Not even in getting into bed. At first, during the first century or so, I'm merely giving his impressions, he used to worry aimlessly about the past. One thing he kept on repeating to himself as he lay in the dark, I wish I had called on Parrish the first morning after the high winds began. I meant to. The first loose tiles would have been easy to fix. Then Mrs. Parrish might never have caught that cold. Then I should not have caught cold either. Then I should have had a week longer. But in time he forgot what it was that he had wanted a week longer for, if he had worried at all after that. It was about his jobs in the hospital. He planned them out, thinking how quickly he could stop that board creaking or rehang that door or mend that table leg. Probably he really became rather useful, though no one ever told him so. But that, of course, cannot have been the reason why they kept the poor little man so long. They may have been waiting for him to get better, and judging better by some odd medical standard of their own. At any rate, poor Nagel got no pleasure out of life. Not what he had been used to call pleasure, 
He was certainly not amused. But it cannot be denied that he began to have a feeling of, of satisfaction. Bread rather than jam. He could take up a task the moment one bell rang and lay it aside promptly the moment the next one went, all tidy and ready to be continued at the right time. He got through quite a lot in a day now. He finished small things off neatly. He had no time of his own, except alone in his bed cell, and yet he was becoming master of his time. He began to know just what he could do with it. There was no sense of rush. He was quieter inside now, and at resting time he could really rest. Then suddenly they changed all his hours. They hardly let him go to bed at all. They took him off carpentry altogether and kept him at plain digging day after day. He took it fairly well. It was a long while before he even began to grope in the back of his mind for the curses that he had practically forgotten. He, w he went on digging till his back seemed broken, his hands were raw, and he felt that he could not manage another spadeful. Nobody thanked him. But the doctor came in and looked at him. Knock off, he said. Complete rest in the dark. Nagle was lying in the dark, resting completely, so that, as he had not been either feeling or thinking at all, he might have been lying there for hours or for years, as far as he could tell. But now he heard voices, not voices that he'd ever heard before. There seemed to be a medical board, or perhaps a court of inquiry, going on close at hand, in an adjoining room with the door open, possibly, though he could not see any light. Now the niggle case, said a voice, a severe voice, more severe than the doctor's. What was the matter with him, said a second voice, a voice that you might have called gentle, though it was not soft, it was a voice of authority, and sounded at once hopeful and sad. What was the matter with Niggle? His heart was in the right place. Yes, but it did not function properly, said the first voice. And his head was not screwed on tight enough. He hardly ever thought at all. Look at the time he wasted, not even amusing himself. He never got ready for his journey. He was moderately well off, yet he arrived here almost destitute and had to be put in the pauper's wing. A bad case, I'm afraid. I think he should stay some time yet. It would not do him any harm, perhaps. But, of course, he is only a little man. He was never meant to be anything very much. And he was never very strong. Let us look at the records. Yes, there are some favorable points, you know. Perhaps, but very few that will really bear examination. Well... There are these. He was a painter by nature. In a minor way, of course. Still, a leaf by Niggle has a charm of its own. He took a great deal of pains with leaves, just for their own sake. But he never thought that made him important. There's no note in the records of his pretending, even to himself, that it excused his neglect of things ordered by the law. Then he should not have neglected so many said the first voice. All the same, he did answer a good many calls. A small percentage, mostly of the easier sort. And he called those interruptions. The records are full of the word. 
together with a lot of complaints and silly imprecations. True. But they looked like interruptions to him, of course. Poor little man. And there's this. He never expected any return, as so many of his sort call it. There's the parish case, the one that came in later. He was Niggle's neighbor, never did a stroke for him, and seldom showed any gratitude at all. But there's no note in the records that Niggle expected Parrish's gratitude. He does not seem to have thought about it. Yes, that is a point, but rather small. I think you will find Niggle often merely forgot. Things he had to do for Parrish he put out of his mind as a nuisance he had to deal with. Still, there's this last report, that west wet bicycle ride. I rather lay stress on that. It seems plain that this was a genuine sacrifice. Niggle guessed that he was throwing away his last chance with his picture, and he guessed, too, that Parrish was worrying unnecessarily. I think you put it too strongly, but you have the last word. It is your task, of course, to put the best interpretation on the facts. Sometimes they will bear it. What do you propose? I think it is a case for a little gentle treatment now, said the second voice. Niggle thought he had never heard anything so generous as that voice. It made gentle treatment sound like a load of rich gifts and the summons to a king's feast. Then suddenly Niggle felt ashamed. To hear that he was considered a case for gentle treatment overwhelmed him and made him blush in the dark. It was like being publicly praised. When you and all the audience knew that the praise was not deserved, Niggle hid his blushes in the rough blanket. There was a silence. Then the first voice spoke to Niggle quite close. You've been listening, it said. Y yes. Well, what have you to say? Uh, could you tell me about Parrish? I should like to see him again. I hope he is not very ill. Can you cure his leg? It used to give him a wretched time. And please don't worry about him and me. He was a very good neighbor and let me have excellent potatoes very cheap, which saved me a lot of time. D did he? said the first voice. I'm, I'm glad to hear it. There was another silence. Nagel heard the voices receding. Well, I agree. Let him go on to the next stage, tomorrow if you like. Nagel woke up to find that his blinds were drawn, and his little cell was full of sunshine. He got up and found that some comfortable clothes had been put out for him, not hospital uniform. After breakfast, the doctor treated his sore hands, putting some salve on them, and that healed them at once. He gave Niggle some good advice and a bottle of tonic in case he needed it. In the middle of the morning, they gave Niggle a biscuit and a glass of wine, and then they gave him a ticket. You can go to the railway station now, said the doctor. The porter will look after you. Goodbye. Niggle slipped out of the main door and blinked a little. The sun was very bright. Also, he had expected to walk out into a large town to match the size of the station, but he did not. He was on the top of a hill, green bare, swept by a keen, invigorating wind. 
nobody else was about. Away down under the hill, he could see the roof of the station shining. He walked downhill to the station briskly, but without hurry. The porter spotted him at once. This way, he said, and led Nagel to a bay in which there was a very pleasant little local train standing, one coach and a small engine, both very bright, clean, and newly painted. It looked as if this was their first run. Even the track that lay in front of the engine looked new. The rails shone, the chairs were painted green, and the sleepers gave off a delicious smell of fresh tar in the warm sunshine. The coach was empty. Where does this train go, Porter? I don't think they've fixed its name yet, but you'll find it all right. And he shut the door. The train moved off at once. Nagel lay in his seat. The little engine puffed along in a deep cutting with high green banks roofed with blue sky. It did not seem very long before the engine gave a whistle. The brakes were put on and the train stopped. There was no station and no signboard, only a flight of steps up the green embankment. At the top of the steps, there was a wicket gate and a trim hedge. By the gate stood his bicycle, at least it looked like his, and there was a yellow label tied to the bars with Nigel written on it in large black letters. Nagel pushed open the gate, jumped on the bicycle, and went bowling downhill in the spring sunshine. Before long, he found that the path on which he had started had disappeared, and the bicycle was rolling along over a marvelous turf. It was green and close, and yet he could see every blade distinctly. He seemed to remember having seen or dreamed of that sweep of grass somewhere or other. The curves of the land were familiar somehow. Yes, the ground was becoming level as it should, and now, of course, it was beginning to rise again. A great green shadow came between him and the sun. Nagel looked up and fell off his bicycle. Before him stood the tree, his tree, finished. If you could say that of a tree that was alive, its leaves opening, its branches growing and bending in the wind that Nagel had so often felt or guessed and had so often failed to catch. He gazed at the tree, and slowly he lifted his arms and opened them wide. It's a gift, he said. He was referring to his art, and also to the result, but he was using the word quite literally. He went on looking at the tree. All the leaves he had ever labored were all there, as he'd imagined them rather than as he had made them. And there were others that had only budded in his mind, and many that might have budded, if only he had had time. Nothing was written on them. They were just exquisite leaves, yet they were dated as clear as a calendar. Some of the most beautiful and the most characteristic, the most perfect examples of the Nigel style were seen to have been produced in collaboration with Mr. Parrish. There was no other way of putting it. The birds were building in the tree. Astonishing birds, how they sang. They were mating, hatching, growing wings, and flying away, singing into the forest, even while he looked at them. For now he saw that the forest was there too, opening out on either side and marching away into the distance. The mountains were glimmering far away. After a time, Nigel turned toward the forest, not because he was tired of the tree, but he seemed to have got it all in his mind clear now and was aware of it 
and of its growth, even when he was not looking at it. As he walked away, he discovered an odd thing. The forest, of course, was a distant forest. Yes, he could approach it, even enter it, without its losing that particular charm. He had never before been able to walk into the distance without turning it into mere surroundings. It really added a considerable attraction to walking in the country, because as you walked, new distances opened out, so that you now had doubled, tripled or quadrupled distances, doubly, triply, and quadruply enchanting. You could go on and on and have a whole country in a garden, or in a picture, if you prefer to call it that. You could go on and on, but not perhaps forever. There were the mountains in the background. They did get nearer very slowly. They did not seem to belong to the picture, or only as a link to something else. A glimpse through the trees of something different, a further stage, another picture. Niggle walked about, but he was not merely pottering. He was looking round carefully. The tree was finished, though not finished with. Just the other way about to what it used to be, he thought. But in the forest, there were a number of inconclusive regions that still needed work and thought. Nothing needed altering any longer. Nothing was wrong as far as it had gone, but it needed continuing up to a definite point. Niggle saw the point precisely in each case. He sat down under a very beautiful distant tree, a variation of the great tree, but quite individual, or it would be with a little more attention. And he considered where to begin work and where to end it and how much time was required. He could not quite work out his scheme. Of course, he said, what I need is perish. There are lots of things about earth, plants, and trees that he knows, and I don't. This place cannot be just left as my private work. I need help and advice. I ought to have got it sooner. He got up and walked to the place where he had decided to begin work. He took off his coat, then down in a little sheltered hollow, hidden from a further view, he saw a man looking round, rather bewildered. He was leaning on a spade, but plainly did not know what to do. Nickel hailed him. Parrish, he called. Parrish shouldered his spade and came up to him. He still limped a little. They did not speak, just nodded as they used to do, passing in the lane. But now they walked about together, arm in arm, without talking. Nickel and Parrish agreed exactly where to make the small house and garden, which seemed to be required. As they worked together, it became plain that Nigel was now the better of the two at ordering his time and getting things done. Oddly enough, it was Nigel who became most absorbed in building and gardening, while Parrish often wandered about looking at trees, and especially at the tree. One day, Nigel was busy planting a quickset hedge, and Parrish was lying on the grass nearby, looking attentively at a beautiful and shapely little yellow flower growing in the green turf. Nagel had put a lot of them among the roots of his tree long ago. Suddenly, Parrish looked up. His face was glistening in the sun, and he was smiling. This, this is grand. I oughtn't to be here, really. Thank you for putting in a word for me. Oh, nonsense. Uh, I don't remember what I said, but... Anyway, it was not nearly enough. Oh, yes it was. It got me out a lot sooner. That, that second voice, you know, he had me sent here. He said you had asked to see me. I owe it to you. 
No, you, you owe it to the second voice. We both do. They went on living and working together. I do not know how long. It is no use denying that at first they occasionally disagreed, especially when they got tired. For at first they did sometimes get tired. They found that they had both been provided with tonics. Each bottle had the same label. A few drops to be taken in water from the spring before resting. They found the spring in the heart of the forest. Only once long ago had Niggle imagined it, but he had never drawn it. Now he perceived that it was the source of the lake that glimmered far away and the nourishment of all that grew in the country. The few drops made the water astringent, rather bitter, but invigorating, and it cleared the head. After drinking, they rested alone. And then they got up again, and things went on merrily. At such times, Niggle would think of wonderful new flowers and plants, and Parrish always knew exactly how to set them and where they would do best. Long before the tonics were finished, they had ceased to need them, and Parrish even lost his limp. As their work drew to an end, they allowed themselves more and more time for walking about, looking at the trees and the flowers and the lights and the shapes and the lie of the land. Sometimes they sang together, but Nagel found that he was now beginning to turn his eyes more and more often toward the mountains. The time came when the house in the hollow, the garden, the grass, the forest, the lake, and all the country was nearly complete in its own proper fashion. The great tree was in full blossom. We, we shall finish this evening, said Parrish one day. After that, we will go for a really long walk. And they set out the next day, and they walked until they came right through the distances to the edge. It was not visible, of course. There was no line, no fence or wall. But they knew that they had come to the margin of that country. They saw a man, he looked like a shepherd, was walking toward them down the grass slopes that led up to the mountains. Do you want a guide? he asked. Do you want to go on? For a moment, a shadow fell between Niggle and Parrish, for Niggle knew that he did not want to go on, and in a sense, ought to go on. But Parrish did not want to go on. It was not ready to go. I must wait for my wife. She'd be lonely. I, I rather gathered that they would send her after me some time or other when she was ready. And when I had got things ready for her, the house is finished now, as well as we could make it. But I should like to show it to her. She'll be able to make it better, I expect, more homely. I hope she'll like this country, too. He turned to the shepherd. Are you a guide? Could you tell me the name of this country? Oh, don't you know? said the man. It's Niggle's country. It is Niggle's picture, or most of it. A little of it is now Parrish's garden. Niggle's picture? Did you think of all this, Niggle? I never knew you were so clever. Why didn't you tell me? Oh, he tried to tell you long ago, said the man, but you would not look. He had only got canvas and paint in those days, and you wanted to mend your roof with them. This is what you and your wife used to call Niggle's nonsense, or that daubing. But it did not look like this then, not real. No, it was only a glimpse then. But you might have caught that glimpse, if you had ever thought it worth while to try. No, I, I did not give you much chance, said Niggle. I never tried to explain. I used to call you old earth grubber. 
but what does it matter? We have lived and worked together now. Things might have been different, but they could not have been better. I'm, I'm afraid I shall have to be going. We shall meet again, I expect. There must be many more things we can do together. Goodbye. He shook Parrish's hand warmly. A good, firm, honest hand, it seemed. He turned and looked back for a moment. The blossom on the great tree was shining like flame. All the birds were flying in the air and singing. Then he smiled, nodded to Parrish, and went off with the shepherd. He was going to learn about sheep and the high pasturages and look at a wider sky and walk even further and further toward the mountains, always uphill. Beyond that, I cannot guess what became of him. Even little Niggle in his old home could glimpse the mountains far away, and they got into the borders of his picture. But what they really are like and what lies beyond them, only those can say who have climbed them. I think he was a silly little man, said Councillor Tompkins. Worthless, in fact. No use to society at all. Oh, I don't know, said Atkins, who was nobody of importance, just a schoolmaster. I'm not so sure. It depends on what you mean by use. No practical or economic use. I dare say he could have been made into a serviceable cog of some sort. Few schoolmasters knew your business, but you don't. So we get useless people of his sort. If I ran this country, I should put him and his like to some job they're fit for, washing dishes in a communal kitchen or something. And I should see that they did it properly, or I would put them away. I should have put him away long ago. Put him away? You mean you'd have made him start on the journey before his time? Yes, if... You must use that meaningless old expression. Push him through the tunnel into the great rubbish heap. That's what I mean. Then you don't think painting is worth anything? Not worth preserving or improving or even making use on? No, oh, of course, painting has uses. But you couldn't make use of his painting. There's plenty of scope for bold young men, not afraid of new ideas and new methods. None for this old-fashioned stuff private daydreaming. He could not have designed a telling poster to save his life, always fiddling with leaves and flowers. I asked him once, why? He said he thought they were pretty. Can you believe it? He said pretty. What? Digestive and genital organs of plants? I said to him, and he had nothing to answer. Silly footler. Footler? Yes, poor little man. He never finished anything. Ah, uh, well... His canvases have been put to better uses since he went. But I'm not sure, Tompkins. You remember that large one? The one they used to patch the damaged house next door to his after the gales and floods? Well, I found a corner of it, torn off, lying in a field. It was damaged, but legible. A mountain peak and a spray of leaves. I can't get it out of my mind. Out of your what? Who are you two talking about? said Perkins, intervening in the cause of peace. Atkins had flushed rather red. The name's not worth repeating, said Tompkins. I don't know why we were talking about him at all. He did not live in town. No, but you had your eye on his house all the same. That is why you used to go and call and sneer at him while drinking his tea. 
Well, you've got his house now, as well as the one in town, so you need not grudge him his name. We were talking about Niggle, if you want to know, Perkins. Oh, poor little Niggle. Never knew he painted. That was probably the last time Niggle's name ever came up in conversation. However, Atkins preserved the odd corner. Most of it crumbled, but one beautiful leaf remained intact. Atkins had it framed. Later, he left it to the town. It was in the museum for a long while. Leaf by Niggle hung there in a recess and was noticed by a few eyes. But eventually, the museum was burned down, and the leaf and Niggle were entirely forgotten in his old country. It is proving very useful indeed, said the second voice, as a holiday and a refreshment. It is splendid for convalescence, and not only for that. For many, it is the best introduction to the mountains. It works wonders in some cases. I'm sending more and more there. They seldom have to come back. No, that is so. I think we shall have to give the region a name. What do you propose? The porter settled that some time ago. Train for Niggles Parish in the Bay. He has shouted that for a long while now. Niggles Parish. I sent a message to both of them to tell them. What did they say? <laughs> they both laughed. Laughed. The mountains rang with it. End of Leaf by Niggle by J.R.R. R. Tolkien